0: issue for
1: all women. Oh hey there, welcome to episode 28 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey
2: Noonan and I once accidentally stuck my finger up a jaguar's nose.
3: I honestly <laughs> thought that was going to say
2: arse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I keep forgetting to put my bins out. Is that
3: a euphemism? <laughs> Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay. And I'm Jen Offitt and this week I learnt that kittens used to be called catlings. That oh, is very cute. It's amazing, I it? wish you could
1: see Jen's delighted little face. <laughs> It's not your only podcast this week, is it, mate?
3: No, it's not. I'm also chatting to the excellent Ad Lloyd on this week's Griefcast, which you can hear today if you're listening on Wednesday.
1: Later on, our personal finance expert, Vix
2: Layton, is here to tell us why loyalty doesn't pay. Yotta Osman tells us what's worth checking out at the cinema as Oscar season
3: gets underway. Anne Miller tells us what books should be on our bedside tables and indeed in our eyes. And I do Disney's The Black Cauldron.
2: Brace yourselves. But first, what aboutery? less Lesson Charitable Behaviour
1: and Post by Bendy Banana. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Bush
2: Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph where we, well, whatever the complete opposite of saying I feel really sorry for men, they've had a tough year is. Well, where we do that.
1: My eyes have rolled so far back in my head that I can see the past. And the way things are going for women, it doesn't look too different from the future. But what about the men I hear you cry, right? Sure. In the week that marked a 100 years since the Representation of People Act was passed, an act which allowed some, important word there, women to vote, social media and the news were alight with the bigging up of the birds from history that fought tooth and nail for a forward step on the March for Equality. Thanks, Millicent Fawcett. Strong work, Emmeline Pankers. Whoop, whoop, Annie Kenney. The Act, passed on February the 6th, 1918, also allowed all men over the age of 21 to vote. That's all men. Women had to be over 30 and occupy a house, or be married to someone who did. But still, an important... Sorry? Sorry, what's that, the telegraph? Stop whining and talk properly so I can understand you. Why has everyone forgotten about male suffrage? You're, You're genuinely using that as a headline on February the 6th, 2018? Okay. The rich blokes at the top did wait a while before sending the lift down, that is true. And you know what? Feel free to organise your own celebrations. Just stop expecting women to do it
2: fucking for you. Yeah. A genuinely horrific story came via The Times this week, which revealed that Oxfam had sacked four members of staff and allowed another three to resign after a 2011 inquiry into sexual exploitation in Haiti in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake, which killed 220,000 people injured 300,000 and left 1.5 million homeless. Now, in case you're thinking this was some sort of outlier behaviour, it's worth pointing out that one of the men allowed to resign was Roland Van Hauwamereen. I genuinely don't know how to say that. Um,
3: Hauwamereen? Hauwamereen, I would say. Not knowing
2: how to pronounce somebody's name is rude, but in this case, I don't give a fuck. Oxfam's country director for Haiti admitted he had used prostitutes in his Oxfam-funded flat. So, why are we only finding out about this now? Good question. It's because Oxfam failed to inform the Charity Commission about the specific nature of the allegations and did not file a final report. The charity watchdog has now demanded to see the full details of the accusations made about Oxfam staff, which included claims that children had been sexually exploited. The charity has since stated allegations that underage girls may have been involved were not proven, which is, it should be noted, very different from being proven false.
1: Very different. You
2: can't prove it. It's also worth pointing out for anyone who might fail to be totally outraged by the moral abyss they find themselves staring into, that prostitution is illegal in Haiti, and the men were also in breach of the United Nations statements on the behaviour of aid workers. Horrified enough yet? Um. Well, bad news, there's more to come. Oxfam also failed to inform other charities of the accusations which means that the men involved may have since gone on to work in the same region for different charities. The Times also reminded readers that Oxfam gets government funding and in a week when Jacob Rees-Mogg is photographed holding a Daily Express petition calling for cuts to foreign aid, the path forward for Oxfam seems pretty clear to me. And it's not to say we have set up a whistleblower's line. It's we are going to fucking well sort our culture out. Hear, hear, What's actually genuinely more horrific is the amount of people that I have seen defending this.
1: Agreed. I've seen that on Twitter. The women don't need money. There was nothing to fucking buy in Haiti at that time. What were they supposed to spend money on?
2: Yeah, The idea that going to a prostitute at a time of crisis is a charitable gesture and enabling her to work for a living... The only answer that I have to that personally is, have you considered giving her the money and not fucking her?
3: Was that I mean, the that's defense? crazy.
2: I have seen that defence wow, by wee, men
3: and bum. by women wow. on Twitter. Oh, God,
2: humanity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the wow. humanity, or in this oh, case, wow. the lack of it.
3: Shall I move on? Yeah. Please. All right, well, if you've been fretting about where else you might cast your vote in the face of teabags chaos... That's Prime Minister tea bag, just in case you've uh, not. PMT bag. PMT bag. <laughs> ah, that's good, isn't it? Uh, fret you not, because John MacDonald had some cold, hard political currency to peddle this week. The Shadow Chancellor attempted to rebuff accusations that his policies would not stand the scrutiny of a cost benefit analysis with a bold claim. The man who hopes to renationalise all the things should he and People's Princess Jeremy Corbyn come to power reckons it's not unrealistic and that his efforts to put once public services irreversibly in the hands of workers in fact would be cost-free because there would no longer be any shareholder dividends to pay. So look, it does sound implausible but who the fuck am I to judge? Because much like Macdonald, I am not an economist.
1: And on a money tip... Oh, hello, the pay gap. Where have you been? Apart from every fucking warehouse per turns out it's not just the BBC. Tesco came under the hammer this week and now faces a record four billion pound equal pay claim with as many as two hundred thousand women affected. Okay, so just in case you've been trapped under a bookcase for the last week, it turns out Tesco checkout staff mostly women get paid eight pounds an hour, while Tesco warehouse staff mostly you guessed it men pocket eleven pounds an hour. But hang on, I hear some of you ask, isn't that just different pay for different jobs? Isn't lugging heavy stuff about different to ringing through loo roll and milk on the tills? Besides, women can just apply to work in the warehouses, right? It's not Tesco's fault that women choose to go into female-dominated professions, is it? Blimey, this potato is proper hot. Except it's not really, is it? It's barely lukewarm. It's not even the right potato. put that potato down! Why is, in inverted commas, women's work, in this case working on the tills, less well paid? Period. Care work versus manual labour. You can guess the stats on gender roles and pay levels, and you'd be right, because when it's considered a profession a woman is capable of doing, it's considered a profession not worth paying well. And there's your stone cold potato right there.
2: Yeah. Here's a little something from the section of the internet previously known as weird news, now more commonly known as this... This is just news now. This is just what news is. A Freedom of Information request revealed Theresa May sent the Brexit letter triggering Article 50 to the EU by first-class Eurostar, which cost just shy of £1,000. That is why Christmas is very expensive for me, because I refuse to send posts any other way. (laughs) It is quite literally first-class mail. This method of delivery was presumably selected from a list of suggestions from Team Brexit, including... (laughs) Having the red arrows deliver it, <laughs> nailing it to a bendy banana and throwing it into the sea, or breaking into Jean Claude Juncker's bedroom and leaving it sticking out of his arsehole. The milk
3: trade man's not up to much these days. I bet he could have done that. Do you know what? Me and my mum went to Paris once when I was a kid and we got upgraded on the old Eurostar. Ooh because, la la. Ooh, ooh la la, indeed. It was delightful, so I think that letter probably had a lovely time. You get food and everything. It is delicious. Yeah. All the croissants that letter could eat. Oh no, I think it was like some sort of coco van. Nice. Yeah. There's a lot of them yeah. about.
2: <laughs> to be Especially honest, if they'd sent it via coco van... Coco it, white van, man. Yeah,
3: it would cost probably 40 or 50 quid. Well, speaking of Brexit, just when it seemed to be going so well... Oh, no, hang on. No. So yeah, speaking of Brexit, EU Brexit negotiator, now I'm going to call him Michelle Barnier. You do that, Jen. He spoke out this week about the substantial disagreements betwixt the negotiating parties of the UK who want to have their cake and eat it and the EU who have some issues with giving cake to freeloading twats. Citing the law and stuff, Barnier said that a decision by the UK to quit the customs union and single market meant that cheques on the Irish border were unavoidable, which I think means the Good Friday Agreement would be fucked. It certainly looks like it's on its way out. Yeah. He suggested that the disagreements between the two parties meant that, in fact, there may be no transition period at all following the UK's divorce from the EU, which sounds promising, doesn't it? Yeah? Yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh,
1: Do you want some good news? yes please it's
3: hardly news that the music
1: industry is geared towards you guessed it men's success that's not to say there aren't a load of ace women making waves and scoring smashes on the hit parade but the top spengalis producers and money makers all pissed standing up young women hoping to make it in music simply aren't being given a say step forward all women label saffron records fresh out of bristol and hoping to change that Saffron only has women on its books and, taking it a step further, employs only women, like some sort of standard issue for the music scene, which is something we can definitely get behind.
2: Indeed. Yeah. More news, hopefully, some of it like that, next week.
1: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week.
3: It's that time of the week where we shout, Don't treat me like a piece of meat! at the jolly butcher that is the patriarchy Then jiggle our tits in its face anyway. It was reported this week that an all-female collective I Am is soon to hit London to get quasi naked in front of diners enjoying a six-course meat-based meal in the name <laughs> of, <laughs> in the name of gender equality. What about the vegetarians, eh? Anyway, I always have a six-course meat-based meal. <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? Tuesday. That is a Do lot. Do you think of it's meat? like one of those Brazilian restaurants where they like carry the skewers around and maybe i hope they have like really sturdy toilets that's what i'm <laughs> gonna say <laughs> the show performance dinner i don't know it was devised as an exploration of female sensuality and involves scan <laughs> i can't say
1: this. female meatuality
3: <laughs> <laughs> this next bit honestly made me ruffle so much when i read it last night it involves scantily clad birds <laughs> Crawling along tables quickly—it's <laughs> the quickly bit that does it, because <laughs> that's sexy, isn't it? I'm going to crawl quite quickly. Anyway,
1: Jen, you can't take your time, mate. People uh... are trying to get meat down.
3: <laughs> Sorry, did I just put my knee in your steak? <laughs> Doing headstands and acting in character. What character? What, yeah, what character? I don't know. The Evening Standard did not specify. Ah, the character of a
1: fast-crawling headstand twirling. <laughs> Broad. Who likes meat. Meaty. Uh,
3: It's aimed to prove to dudes that a sexy lady (laughs) because That does sound quite sexy. (laughs) Like, really sexy. (laughs) I'm crawling quite quickly. It's quite... Stop
1: it, Jen. I'm going to slip off my chair with all this sexy talk. Talk about the meat again. Go on, talk about the
3: meat. (laughs) Okay.
2: sorry. I'm going to compose myself. It would probably help if Jen wasn't just crawling sexually... (laughs) Across our meat-filled podcasting <laughs> table, Jesus. while she
3: was reading it, quite, quite quickly Michael though, though. Quite quickly. Yeah, quite quickly. Super quickly. Watch out, you'll get you'll get
2: splinters.
4: Splinters.
3: It is very sexy, obviously, <laughs> and it doesn't sound like something that was devised by Legs Akimbo Theatre Company <laughs> at all. You can't crawl with Legs Akimbo, Jen. It's impossible. <laughs> well, I don't know. Anyway, the point is to prove that that sexy lady is an empowered lady, not a piece of meat, or indeed a money-spinning gimmick. Yeah, Yeah. I mean,
2: genuinely, my very first thought with this is using women in that manner to prove that women aren't a piece of meat is roughly akin to trying to prove that you shouldn't shit where you eat by making people sit on commodes while they're having their dinner. Although with all that meat, that might be quite a good idea. (laughs) It's the (laughs) quickly. Crawling quickly. Come on, love, crawl faster. (laughs) What a load of Shit. (laughs)
1: Hello. We are joined in the studio by the wonderful Anne Miller, our books expert when we were an online magazine, and finally we've got her in to do some actual talking.
4: Hey, Anne. Hi. Thanks for coming in. No worries. You brought stuff. I brought. I brought props so you can some atmospheric noises. Ah, <laughs> noise, but that's how I read. I see if I just... <laughs> just, just check the size of them. First.
2: That was a good noise. <laughs> Sounds like we playing it. cards, but <laughs> <We're just laughs> gambling and yeah. talking
1: about books. Hands up if you're a noisy reader. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> So you've come to talk
4: to us about three books in particular. Yes, I've brought three. So I have brought um, Three Things About Elsie by Joanna Cannon. This came out at the start of January. We've got Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman, which that one came out last year, but it just won, well, last month, won the Costa First Novel Award, Mm -hmm. and it's currently Waterston's Book of the Month, so you'll see it everywhere. And I have Lucy Mangan's Bookworm, A Memoir of Childhood Reading, which is out in a few weeks. Uh, Lucy
1: Mangan is on our April In Conversation show. Blood. How convenient. How convenient. It's almost like it, unplanned it. it, it was, good, isn't she? <laughs> good. <laughs> you can ask her about Bookworm. I'm
4: sure she'll be pleased. And which one are you going to start it? with? Let's start with Bookworm because that's about children's books. So chronologically. It's it also feels, in your hands. It's yeah. also the one I'm holding. So so Lizzie Mangan I've loved since I was, God, high school I used to read her column in the Guardian all the time first thing I ever read she's written books before uh, compilations of her columns she wrote a book about Charlie and Chocolate Factory but this is her musings on perfect childhood reading so she takes her own books she loves starting with the very hungry caterpillar and she goes doesn't love the very hungry caterpillar mad people mad people you know it was originally called a week with Willy the worm because he (sighs) was inspired by the little um, hole punch and then he thought oh a worm could crawl through Ah. I think it's Eric Carle. He did well to change
1: it to be in a hungry caterpillar. Absolutely. Well,
4: well in Lucy's book, it's to talk because she also talks about why she loves them and about the adventures the characters go on, but also about how the books came to be and bits about the authors. So he originally wanted the worm. And I think his publisher said, could you try a caterpillar? And apparently he just yelled, butterfly, and ran out of the room and then came back. With it. <laughs> it's a much better ending. Now he's a butterfly. Than yeah, absolutely. He's still a worm.
5: <laughs>
1: We've all been there. Or maybe he just saw one out the window. And he chased yeah. chase it and get it. <laughs>
4: just wanted to catch it. But what's so nice about it, I think, is it's sort of these classics like, like The Secret Garden, ballet shows, books that I think kind of are the building blocks of a lot of readers now. But because it's Lucy's personal choice. There's lots that I haven't read before. There's sort of different things to think about in one. There's one slightly heartbreaking bit where she quotes uh, Neil Stratfield's own thoughts on ballet shoes, which is one of my favourite books. And apparently Stratfield said, the story poured off my pen, more or less telling itself. I distrusted what came easily and so despised the book.
1: Have you like made a little list of what you want to go and read based on Lucy's recommendations? Yeah, yeah. there's a whole bunch
4: of stuff I haven't read, actually. Although also, it also makes some books that I haven't reread. So I haven't reread Barbar since I was tiny. And in my head, he's a sort of friendly elephant. baba the racist elephant. <laughs> well, I hadn't been aware of the racism until I like, read right in here and was like, ooh, oh, <laughs> that adds yeah. a layer to it. Because when you're four, it's just an elephant who wears a crown. Yeah. yeah. And then...
1: He doesn't love an animal in <laughs> fancy dress. Why? <It's>
4: <laughs> exactly. And um, that's the problem, though. He's, coming, he's, in, he's taking on human ways and not being like the other elephants. It's part of his problem. Um,
1: Orwellian when you look at it that way. (laughs) Jesus.
4: But there's also a bit, nice bits where she talks about um, her dad bringing home a book one day and saying, oh, you might like to read this. And it was The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And I think it's really nice, these moments of books that you sort of carry around forever and you don't know as a kid which one that's going to be. No. Do you remember any Um, books that caught you by surprise? Well, I I wouldn't
2: say a book that caught me by surprise, but a book that my dad nagged me to Mm -hmm. read from, I would say, a very young age to the degree that I was probably too young to read it. And I actually read it when I was about nine, I would say, was um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which isn't a children's book by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's 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 a
1: book with children. It's a book with children.
2: But but yes, uh, that was the book that I was actually scared of that I might have to go back to him and say I didn't like it Mm. because he did really nag. But the book that I was completely and utterly fascinated with when I was a kid and really loved, and nobody else seemed to have read, and then I read to my nephew when he was about eight or nine, was The Machine Gunners by Robert Westfield. You wrote about it for us, which, didn't which you? Which I wrote yeah. about for us. It's about some children growing up in Northumberland during the Second World War who find a downed German plane and sort of take control of the machine gun and what? decide to try and fight the Germans on their own with the machine gun. And it was amazing.
4: And it's a kids.
2: Yeah. What shocked me yeah. when I read it to my nephew was how bloody it was, oh, how really? absolutely gory it was. But yet... I suppose at the time it was written in the 1970s, it was written for people to read to their kids, maybe the people who remembered the war or who'd had to read to their grandkids or people who like, had their parents tell stories about the war, like with my grandparents, that nobody ever seemed to think it. But I had to actually censor it when I was reading it to my nephews because it was a bit where well, someone's decapitated in it. And, yeah, but I really love <laughs> that. That does not <laughs> happen
1: in the whole I do, but come. the weird thing about
2: that <laughs> book is I don't know how it came into my life. I can't remember being yeah. given it. I can't remember where it sort of where it came from. <sighs> but when I lent it to my nephew, because I didn't have time to read it all when he was staying with me, It came with a lecture that if he lost it, I would be incredibly disappointed in him. (laughs) Not angry,
1: just disappointed. Just really disappointed (laughs) in
2: him because it was a much-loved book and it smelled well old. Mm. That's really interesting
1: when you were talking about the the violence and the the gore. yeah. One of the series of books that I remember best from my childhood that my mum chose because there were a brilliant illustration on the cover, were Brian Jakes's Red Walls series and it was all about these fighty mice. Warrior mice. Oh, my brother had
4: can... those, the fighty mice.
1: The <laughs> fighty mice and Clooney the rat. They were so bloody and so gory and full of death and nastiness and human mm-hmm. characteristics given to these fighty mice and evil rat but I still have them—the three that I really loved—and I, I still have them on my shelf. And I look yeah. up and I can remember all of the stories because I read them and reread them and reread them. And I think I was just attracted to that violence.
4: Yeah, it's funny those books as well. The, I think I wrote a column for the Issue about all those books that you mean to read. Yeah, and it's almost like because every month there's more books that you want. Yeah, um, yeah, all these different worlds to get involved in. Yeah,
1: God, I love reading. I know that sounds really simple, but yeah. God
4: reading's good, isn't it? Yeah, well, that. Okay. But I think that's also what's so lovely about Lizzie's book—is it. I think all those kids who do love books I mean in your school you've got what like 25 other kids if no one there shares your taste you don't really get to talk about them and then as an adult and with these books and with Twitter you're like oh we can talk about I Capture the Castle and the Famous Five and it's sort of I don't know, it's that like moment for the kids, so we weren't doing the Spice Girls routines in the playground. Yeah. We talk about <laughs> The Secret <laughs> Seven. I buy
1: my mates who have children books. That's what they get. Yeah. Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls has been going yeah, down a treat at the moment. I bought that for a two-year-old. <laughs> she can't read it yet, but to her mum, Nazia, I was like, yeah, you're going to enjoy this as much as yeah. winter It's
4: And so that yeah, sort of building a good bookshelf will sort of see you through because mm, you yeah. can read them at any point. And you, that, especially that one, you can dip into that literally at any age. Yeah, Right that- before I gave it to them. You're really carefully holding the cover <laughs> yes. so
1: yeah. should we jump to another one
4: yes actually let's jump to which one would you like Eleanor or Elsie Let's talk about
1: Elsie, because you are solo on this one, because I've not read it. Have you read it? Home? No.
4: Ah, well, when, if I read Capture the Castle, you guys okay. need to go read Elsie. That one's
1: like me it's got, a, it's got Battenberg, Battenberg on the front, cover. i really hungry. Uh, <laughs> I want
4: cake. <laughs> it is good. So this is Three Things About Elsie by Joanna Cannon. It came out in January. Joanna Cannon wrote The Trouble with Goats and Sheep, which did crazy well last year, and this is her second book. So she used to be a psychiatrist in the NHS, and she just has this really wonderful way of talking about people and the way that people are and things that we do every paragraph you just sort of really trust in everything she says and the way she observes people and this book is about an 84 year old called Florence she lives in a sheltered housing place called Cherry Tree Home and it's both the story of Florence trying to piece her memories together but also about what happens in those sheltered housing places which are often a little bit on the edge of society and not always talked about and they're kind of a bit set apart So when the book opens, Florence has had a fall, and she's lying on the floor of her sheltered housing flat, and she's trying to make sense of what happened, and then it hops back to a month before her fall. And it's her and her friend Elsie in this care home, and this new arrival appears. Florence is sure, sure, sure that she's seen him before, and that he's this sort of sinister figure from her past. But because Florence is a bit confused, she's not particularly clear on what happened, The people around her and also the reader isn't quite sure if this man is sinister or if Florence is forgetting. So there are all these funny things like he'll appear in different places. And he complains at one point that she's spying on him, and then they find binoculars in her flat, but she doesn't remember the binoculars. Um, She buys a battenberg from the shop, hence the cover. And then when she opens the cupboard, there's twenty-five of them. She's bought too many, and she doesn't remember this. It's a very clever narration because Florence is confused and you're confused too and so that unreliable narrator sometimes can be quite frustrating. But in this case you just feel so in Florence's world and thinking like her and just desperate to put these pieces together.
1: That's sort so. of a similar structure to Helen the Orient. Yes. Where you're you're in their world that it's very first person. There's no oh, omnipresent narrator who's telling you, well, this is going on in yeah, this Yeah, you've bit. got and their so you, interpretation. They're almost sort of detective-like because you're trying to fit mm-hmm. the pieces together as the person
4: is. Yeah, and knowing which pieces to trust because all our memories are flawed. And yeah. if you're 84, they are yeah. perhaps more flawed than others. And
2: talking about trust, I think one of my greatest frustrations when I read books is yeah. if it veers in any way close to anything you have any experience of and then you think... Yes, nothing like that. I've <laughs> trolled all the way through this, and yeah. it doesn't feel real. Yeah. And yet, with someone with the experience that she has, she would help. Yeah, it's yeah. it it like Joanna
1: Cannon's kind of possibly got like an area of expertise. It's yeah. yeah. not
2: someone sort
4: of, of thinking, "Oh, I'll well, write about an elderly person that will sell." Yeah. she knows what she's trying to say, and there's bits that are really heartbreaking. Like she talks. Florence only really talks to Elsie, and then she gets a friend called Jack. He's later in the book, and he's General Jack. He was in the army. But she says that she likes to call him General Jack with a lowercase g. But Jack doesn't mind because that still makes him sound useful, which is just... Aww. And then Florence is always trying to be helpful, so she's always offering to like make tea for people. She goes to the shop to buy the Battenberg and offers to like give the shelves a quick once-over, but no one wants her help. And there's a horrible bit where she sees somebody across from her who d- passed away, and all her belongings are in a skip And she comments that all your life, all your carefully chosen stuff is just in the skip and then it goes. Well,
2: isn't isn't that strange? Because we were just talking about that because Jen moved house Mm. recently. And I said, when I bought my flat, Mm. the flat below us was being emptied at the same time that we were moving in. Mm. And they were throwing all the stuff into it in a skip. Mm. And it put me into a real existential funk. (laughs) And I was like... I'm
1: just going to throw it all in the skip now. Yeah. <laughs> Save some <laughs> of the effort. The Save, middleman. Middleman. <laughs> Save yeah. the middleman. Save Fifty years later, somebody's just going to throw it in there
2: anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. there is that. Is there's something quite moving about that yeah. image of possessions in a skip it's awful, of a life that because... nobody nobody wants the yeah. remnant self and no one yeah.
4: remembers. And there's awesome. a lovely bit. So when they're trying to solve the mystery, they convince the staff at the care home to take them on a weekend away to Whitby. And oh, everybody is, loves a bit of Whitby, bit of Whitby. <laughs> <love> Whitby. Uh, <laughs> but this is where so the, the goth weekend <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, well they weren't on the goth weekend That would, <laughs> it would have been interesting with the pensioners but it's sort of where the mystery builds. I won't talk about that because spoilers. But it's just these lovely bits about Elsie and Florence and they never thought they'd see the sea again. And like having to have a dance. And it's just kind of like the opposite of Lucy's book. It's things that you've done for the last time and not realise it's the last time. Yeah. Oh God, that's heartbreaking. But it's done so beautifully. Yeah. It's done beautifully.
1: That book leads really nicely into Eleanor Oliphant. Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine.
4: Yes, she is completely fine. Eleanor <laughs> Oliphant is completely fine. She works the same job every day. She buys a meal deal for lunch. And on Friday, she buys pizza from Tesco's and drinks two litres of vodka over the weekend. Which gives you the first inkling that maybe everything is not completely fine. (laughs) Yes, so you've read this one. I
1: have read this one and I think you said you read it in like a day. Yeah, I read it in I think a day, race through it. It's a really easy, fast read, but that's not to say it's not packed with, again, really moving, important stuff, but it's also really fucking funny. It's
4: very funny. And you just, you can't put it down because your your brain is so caught up with Eleanor and what she's doing and you want to sort of... You're right,
1: actually, to take a break or it felt weird you have to then readjust there's an adjustment in the first few chapters when I did actually go oh am I enjoying this but then once I was (laughs) in her world that was it yeah yeah
4: and she's got a really it's interesting again and again it's it's just a story but there's lots of other layers to it and with this one there's comments again you don't really know what happened there's references to things in the past and they come clearer as you read through the book but when you meet Eleanor she's got this very regimented way of living and I think it said somewhere that she knows how to survive but not how to live and it's sort of about the rules of being a human and what you need in your house and the things that would go in a skip. but if you don't have that, your house is very sparse. She keeps herself very separate at work, just does her job and eats her lunch and does her crossword, and off she goes home. She and doesn't really understand other people. No, and isn't really fussed about it. No. She's not sad about it. She's, she's completely got, fine. She's completely fine. And then she meets this guy at work called Raymond, which I think she's not that fussed by, and then she and Raymond come across a pensioner who's fallen down in the street collapsed, and they help him. And then she ends up visiting him in the hospital and gradually she starts meeting all these people and they're all kind and she sort of starts to thaw and she has to do things like she has to go and like buy a certain outfit when she has to go to her funeral because she didn't have those clothes and she goes and gets her hair done. And she just gradually breaks out of these rules she set for herself and sees that there's more more in the world, which is nice. And again, from a place you might not have been expecting from Raymond in a collapsed pensioner in the street. There's hope, isn't yeah. there, Anne?
1: And I think that we need to cling on to any. We <laughs> desperately need to cling on to climate. Absolutely. Eleanor
4: Oliphant can find hope. So can everybody. <laughs> that <laughs> was like great. It. Thank you
1: so much no, for coming you. in, Anne.
4: Where can people find you? Because you're also a QIL, aren't you? I am, you? yes. When I'm reading non-fiction, that goes into QI and the uh-huh. fiction. And how can people find you on the internet? I am on Twitter at Miller underscore Anne. That's probably the best place. Are you and open to book recommendations and yeah, stuff? Yeah, always. Especially yeah. if they are like stuff like I Capture the Castle, because... That's number one on the list now. Yes.
2: <laughs> and also, you are involved in the... Well, a bit more than involved in the Museum of Curiosity. Yes. How much longer is that on the air? And um, people when to is this
4: going out? This, this week. week. Wednesday. What? Oh, that's, so you can find it on iPlayer. The last in the series will be out on Monday. Okay. We're recording it. So the Monday that has probably just passed. Yeah, it's the most fun in the world. And we have Sally Phillips as our co-host or curator, as we call them. And the series has just been... So funny, it's such a mix of people. So, the setup for the show is that the museum is an imaginary museum, and so you can donate anything you want. It doesn't have to be something that's living or that's real or that's the right size. We've got the Big Bang in there, we've got Helen of Troy, we've got a cow pat, so it really ranges. And each episode, we invite three guests to come and be on the board and put forward things to enter into the museum. So, this series, we have Richard Curtis we had hostage negotiator we had a whole bunch of brilliant comedians and we had Ella al-Shamahi who is a paleoanthropologist and she specialises in digs in disputed territories like Yemen and Syria so some really interesting people in that series just like an brilliant. anti-Room 101 yeah it's all the good things okay that sounds cool displayed in an elaborate virtual I'm going to end up in
2: a skip anyway uh, yeah. and and I preserved for to, always I haven't got time to listen i got a massive pile of books I'm about to
1: try and <laughs> to wrestle out of Anne's
5: hands
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so that these two can start their fight uh, mm-hmm. thank
5: Thanks very much. Thank you. Hello, Yosra Osman here to talk about some films for a standard issue podcast. I've picked out films that are all coming out over the next two or three months that I think are really exciting and worth seeing if you get a chance. And I've not seen all of them. A lot of this is on Buzz alone. But hopefully these are some great recommendations. And people I know that have seen them, have also been really, really complimentary. My first pick is that already out in cinemas. It came out on the 2nd of February. It's called Phantom Thread and it's by Paul Thomas Anderson, who, if you don't know who he is, he directed for The Master and There Will Be Blood. It's got Daniel Day-Lewis, who's an absolutely fantastic actor. And it's got Leslie Manville. It's set in 1950s post-war London. And it's about a dressmaker called Reynolds Woodcock, who is played by Daniel Day-Lewis. He is basically the force majeure of the fashion world. He dresses royalty and celebrities. And he's got a lot of women coming and going through his life. Um, But then a new uh, lady, played by uh, Vicky Cripps, comes along uh, and he becomes quite infatuated with her. It looks absolutely beautiful, and um, poor Thomas Anderson, and it, this, I'm not even exaggerating when I say this, I genuinely believe this, he is a masterful director. I was always going to be very excited about this film. Um, it actually managed to get a few nominations at the Oscars, which actually came as a bit of a surprise, I think. That includes Best Director and Best Film, so it's out now, so if you can catch it before it leaves the cinemas and, you know, these days they don't stick around for long, please, please do. I'm actually going to see it tonight and I'm mega excited. Then we've got, I couldn't, I couldn't not talk about this film because I'm so, so excited about this film. We've got Black Panther out on the 12th of February and um, this is a Marvel film directed by Ryan Coogler who his first two features were Fruitvale Station and Creed, and I absolutely loved both of those films, so I'm hoping that Black Panther's going to be a three out of three for Coogler. It's just got a phenomenal cast as well. Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, Lupita Nyong'o, Angela Bassett, and Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis, who there's been a a, a bit of a joke going around, who are the Tolkien white boys. You get it? I hope you get it. If you don't, it's just something that I find quite amusing. It's quite an important film, I think, for for various reasons. It's very Afrocentric. It's about Chadwick Boseman's character, T'Challa, who goes back to the African nation of Wakanda, and he's going to become king. Um, But as king, he has rivals, and and it's about how he faces these rivals. It's really, really exciting um, to have a film that's so Afrocentric coming out in the cinemas as a superhero film. You don't normally see this in the superhero world, especially. And I know that reviews have just come out and thankfully they've been really, really positive. The trailer alone made it look amazing, but it also apparently is a really well-told story with some really interesting characters, and that's really, really important because I do think that sometimes with these kinds of comic book films, this might be a controversial view, but you can lose the kind of solid character development. I'm literally peeing myself with excitement to see that one. So, there we go. In the same week, um so what a week basically, but this is what you get all the time because it's Oscar season and all the kind of awards contenders tend to come out around this time. The next one I picked is The Shape of Water, which actually comes out 2 days after Black Panther, it comes out on the 14th of February, and this one's sort of the Oscar heavyweight got i think 13 nominations at the oscars directed by guillermo del toro who did pan's labyrinth which is one of my favorite films of all time just absolutely amazing Um, and again another film with a super super cast it's got sally hawkins michael shannon octavia spencer richard jenkins three of those actors got oscar nominations so really really amazing cast And the premise of the story, you know, I haven't really looked too much into it because I want to go in with like a fresh mind. But um, it's about a a lady who works uh, as a cleaner in a kind of top secret lab. And she finds and falls in love with this strange fish like creature. Um, And it just sounds like something really beautiful. This blend of fairy tale story with elements of horror monsters and all sorts so it looks absolutely amazing i trust guillermo del toro so so much and so that's one again coming out this week so i'm spending a lot of my money this week and that's called the shape of water comes out valentine's day of course you know lovely love story so if you if you want to go on a cinema date why not go and see that and then we've got coming out two days after that on the 16th of february Uh, We've got Lady Bird, so got to rep it for our female directors. Greta Gerwig is the director of this one. She wrote screenplays for films like Frances Ha, uh, Mistress America, but now she's going behind the camera. This film was, for quite a a significant period of time, I think, um, the best reviewed film on Rotten Tomatoes. So across the board, it's had some really amazing... Reviews. It's got the fabulous uh, Saoirse Ronan in, Timothée Chalamet. Who, if uh, you haven't seen Call Me by Your Name, definitely try and see it if you can. Absolutely superb film with him in, and also uh, Laurie Metcalf. So, Lady Bird is a. It's a semi-autobiographical film. It's about a teenage girl called Christine, or Lady Bird, as she likes to call herself, and it it just kind of sounds like a relatable teenage story. You know, she's kind of this quirky awkward teenager who likes to daydream about her social life and you know what she's got going on in the future she has this kind of weird turbulent relationship with her mother you know it's been called a film full of warmth and depth and really really charming and Greta Gerwig, you know, if you, if you haven't seen Frances Ha, I keep making more recommendations, but um, absolutely brilliant. So I, I've been looking forward to Lady Bird for quite some time and thankfully I haven't got to wait too much longer. So moving on from February, um, or our super week of some awesome films coming out, it's, there's a couple more that I'm going to choose that come out in March. So the first one I'm going to choose a Jennifer Lawrence film. Well, she's the main actor in it, and Frances Lawrence is the director. Um, and it's called Red Sparrow. Uh, it's about a ballerina called Dominika Egorova, who is kind of manipulatively recruited to this Russian intelligence service called Sparrow School. She has to go through this, like, crazy statistic training, and then she's given a mission to target a CIA operative, which turns out to be very, very dangerous for everybody involved. It doesn't look like the most family friendly of films, put it that way. There's been a lot of talk on nudity and the torture that's portrayed. But other than that, it looks like a very intriguing film. And Jennifer Lawrence is always pretty darn good in everything she's in, isn't she? So looking forward to that one as well. That's Red Sparrow and that comes out on the 1st of March. And then coming out on the 2nd of March is a really interesting Chilean film called A Fantastic Woman. Now, this screened at Cambridge Film Festival, which was in October, and I sadly had to miss it because I was watching something else at the same time. But everyone I know that went to see it absolutely loved it, gave it five-star, four-star reviews, and, and it was really, really popular. It's directed by Sebastian Lelio, and it's about a transgender singer called Marina who's played by Daniela Vega, and she faces serious discrimination after the death of her older boyfriend. From what I've heard, this is a really incredible, powerful film about you know prejudice and loss and grief, and because I missed it at Cambridge Film Festival, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for it to come out on general release in the cinemas, and thankfully it's, it's now out. Well, not now, in a month's time. Um, so... If you can catch that one, it looks absolutely fantastic. Another film which isn't actually going to be in the cinemas, quite an interesting story to this one, but Netflix are releasing a film called Annihilation in March. Uh, It's a sci-fi horror and it's directed by Alex Garland, who did Ex Machina, which came out a couple of years ago, and Dread. And it's got Natalie Portman in, who... I mean, Natalie Portman can do no wrong and Oscar Isaac. The buzz has been pretty extreme in terms of how favourable it's been recently. I think the reviews only just started creeping out a couple of weeks ago. And the reviews are absolutely fantastic, despite the fact that it's got quite a messy distribution story. It was Paramount that had the rights to it. And then um, they decided to sell the international rights to Netflix for some reason. But this really looks like a thrill it, with somebody like Natalie Portman in it. I mean, it's just going to be amazing. Um, and that comes out, I don't have the exact date for that one, but that one does come out in March. And then repping it for another female filmmaker here, Lynn Ramsey, who did We Need to Talk About Kevin. Um, she's got a film coming out in, in March, I think March the 9th which is called You Were Never Really Here, and I have seen this one. This is one I did manage to catch at the film festival circuit, but it's got Joaquin Phoenix in, and I have to say, this film, it's like... It literally will thump you with its kind of brilliance, but its darkness behind it as well. Joaquin Phoenix plays this quite complex character, and he's a veteran, and he now goes and finds um, girls who have gone missing. And it's a really shocking film. It's quite violent, but it's also really, really beautiful. It um, has some gorgeous, surreal moments, and it's very, very well executed. And it was just one of the best films I saw at um, um, Cambridge Film Festival. So, really cannot recommend that one um, highly enough, um, especially if you like Lynn Ramsay's work. Um, that one's called You Were Never Really Here, and that's out on March the 9th. And then the last film I'm going to choose, and again, wrapping it for another female filmmaker, um, that's A Wrinkle in Time, which you may have seen the sort of big epic trailer for. It's directed by Ava DuVernay, who did Selma, and also a really fantastic uh, documentary on Netflix called 13th. So if you've, if you've not seen that and you've got Netflix, I'd highly recommend it. A Wrinkle in Time, well, it's a Disney film. I won't quite call it a kid's film. It's a Disney film, um, and it's based on a book Uh, By Madeleine Lengel, which came out in the sixties, and it's a sort of sci-fi fantasy epic with again a really really cool cast. So Oprah Winfrey, Chris Pine, Mandy Kalig, Reese Witherspoon. It just looks like it's going to be again another thrill ride. It's going it looks really really epic, and that comes out on March the twenty-third. So. As you can see, I've quite a few films that are coming out over the next two months that look really, really exciting, have got so much buzz behind them and hopefully you get to see them and you can let us know what you think.
1: Money. This section is sponsored by Decision Tech, the home of Price Comparison.
4: money, 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 money. <gasps>
1: Vix Layton is bang on the money. Hello, we are joined in the studio by our finance expert, Vix Layton. All right, mate.
6: Hello. I panicked. (laughs) What do I do again? Who are you, Vixen? What do you do? (laughs) Well, thanks for asking. My background is price comparison, so I'm an expert in being a cheapskate. So I'm here to to bring all my finest tips for you. And who's your dance player? (laughs) <laughs> i didn't oh, have no, one seems
2: like bullseye introduction, right? <laughs> i was
6: gonna it's say it it's like justin Hawkins. could you yeah. be mine <laughs> i like his music and i like where it. are you gonna keep your speedboat yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna get the coffee machine aren't i the tea's made not uh, not good
2: i saw right we've gone way off the <laughs> we've gone we've gone right? i
6: even <laughs> said what the topic
2: is and I we've gone off it an
6: episode <laughs> of bullseye in which it was
2: ladies night right and all the prizes oh, were one. white goods <laughs> No oh. 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 no speedboat for you motherfucker <laughs> no nope. here's a washing machine and a
6: dishwasher i mean they are useful for men and women mm. like but well, didn't have to so. be like both yeah, yeah i think yeah i could find a use for both vix has joined us to talk about why loyalty doesn't always pay Yeah, that's right. When it comes to financial products, you've got to be a little bit slutty to get the best deal. I like it already. I know. Tell me more. Red hot savings, I'm going to talk to you about. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, to get the best deal, you've got to see a lot of people at the same time so whilst letting your provider think that you're the only one for you so you know, you've got to get on the phone when it's time to negotiate and say oh it's only you I really want to stay but you know I've got a better offer someone's come along they're a millionaire they're going to help me set up my own business it's going to be great what are you going to offer to and they're going to go mm, we'll probably give you about 10% off <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, deal I will take it <laughs> But um, yeah loyalty doesn't pay and I think the way to get the most out of it so you know if you've got a tesca club card for example like they all got shafted a couple of weeks ago when um, the tesca reward program got drastically changed and the thing about it is loyalty is a, a two-way street is i think what they you know what what they're saying is you don't get something for nothing in this kind of scenario so tesco i think we all know by now what you get from tesco in exchange for your club card points is they get all the details about everything that you do and everything that you buy which works for you to a degree because then you get vouchers that are appropriate for you so i'm kind of i'm kind of chilled about my own data like i give away a lot of stuff on social anyways so when it comes to like my shopping habits if people want to know what brand of beans i'm buying I'm, I'm, I'm good for it.
1: I am cagey as fuck.
6: Yeah, I, I am and I'm not. I
2: have a kind of weird thing in which I will not have a Tesco Club card, despite you know the fact that for many years that was the nearest petrol station to my house and I could have made quite a lot of money by filling up there and probably could have gone to Walton Towers once a year for free yeah. or whatever you get from it. On the other hand, I do have a co-op card. Because I just intrinsically trust them more as an organisation, which sounds
3: products but there you no, have No, I think that sounds pretty reasonable <laughs> yeah.
6: It's also one of the most lucrative supermarket cards on the market, to be honest. You get the most of your money and you get to give something back to your community. Yes, it's in the spirit that, yeah, of co-op. Yeah. And it's literally local as well, so you get a couple of pence and a local course gets a few pence, so it is one of the good guys in terms of that. And they let you choose.
2: They offer you about three or four. They send you an email that says, which one of these people do you want to... And they quite often are things like almost like a local brownie pack or something
1: yeah. that you can
6: say, yeah, they can have my money.
1: I think we've been socialised to think that loyalty does pay.
6: It's a good little racket, isn't it? And, you know, people, when they were sitting down, like, back in like my mum used to have green shield saving stamps oh yeah yeah, S-O yeah. Points. I sit and put
2: them S-O in, a, points.
6: in a book for my nan <laughs> i w- used
2: to do yeah me too <laughs> not your nan
0: yeah oh that'd be weird
2: strips of them uh, yeah licking and licking <laughs> it and was great and <laughs> that's basically what we Massively did every Sunday. every day
6: hydrated
1: so yeah. tiger tokens got me my first guns N' roses tape
6: Nice. Mm-hmm. I watched my dad quietly weep after he saved all his ESO vouchers for about two years for me to get the plush tiger toy that probably cost about a fiver. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I would not be told. I was a tenacious child and I was having it. I used to get the little catalogue out and look for it. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with these schemes in that you do get something back, but it's not free and this is the thing this is why everybody was outraged when Tesco's have cut their rewards program so you still get the same amount of points if you want to use them arbitrarily as pence that's fine but for the people who've been saving it up to go to Disneyland or to get their free trip to Alton Towers they've massively slashed that program what, back and now. they've had
1: no warning of it oh so, they did an initial thing and people were outraged and so they they put it off to like June July I think
6: yeah I think Martin Lewis got involved and they got a bit scared yeah, and they
0: ran
1: away but
6: initially their their attitude was absolutely not no, um, well, you, they don't actually. We one of the ones that have already ordered. Well, and exactly that it's the same with like vouchers. You've just got, you know they can pull those at any time. It's not money. Something that's not money you just can't rely on. So my um, my friend Dominic has booked his amazing honeymoon with BA. Saved up all his little Amex points, did it for like years to make sure they could get first class seats. Converted them into BA points. BA decided they didn't want to put first class on that flight, and there was just nothing you could do about it. Because you can't change the points back from BA points into Amex and put them back through, so all of a sudden their flight is just not as good. And he's got, you know, he's he's he got nowhere really with the customer services team for a long, long time until um, his consumer champion friend got involved. Um, go big, go big, <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're not going to put two first class seats on the plane just to please them. But at least they're going to get lounge access now. But you know it's a hard lesson to learn you do all this you do all this amazing stuff you stay with them you're true to them you get the loyalty points and then you you get fucked over at the end they're not obliged
1: do you think maybe the phrase that i probably should see it as is that laziness does not pay because the thought of going through my mortgage details my bank accounts even my utilities and changing stuff I mean, I'm boring myself oh, just yeah. thinking Oh yeah, I mean, it. they
3: absolutely capitalise on inertia. They totally do. That's why energy companies get to screw you. That's why there's effectively no competition in a competitive market and the whole thing is built on the basis that, oh, it's fine because they have to compete with each other. They don't because no one bloody <laughs> but switches. But also it
2: has changed. I can remember when I first learnt to drive, telling my grandad what my to ensure me to drive a car was and he was like what I mean especially given that I was a girl and at that time they Mm. used to they used to give much much lower rates to women now because of like discrimination issues they can't
6: it was at, the math see i used to have to tell people this i used to work in car insurance um women have more accidents but they're tiny tiny damage yeah. so statistically they're just they're just safer drivers we just you know we little little women dink things yeah. that was i remember the um the risk assessing yeah. man telling me in pricing when i was having a go at him about it and he's like oh you know men really go for an accident i'm like well uh. that's well that's fine
2: but my granddad was like he was paying at the time about 30 pounds a year to be insured and i was like what and he said, well, it's because I haven't had an accident in, like, 50 years. And at that point, they used to literally take money off every year and it yeah. used to be cheaper if you'd never claimed. Yeah, no claims. despite like the fact that at 70-odd years old, he was way more dangerous driver <laughs> than I actually was. He could only see out on one eye. <laughs>
6: It's capped at five now. Exact but exactly. five eyes. So five, no, five, five eyes. eyes. Yeah, yeah, five or you can only have five Five years eyes no, or claims. Five now years you no can't, claims. Like now that but in fact and I was
2: just <laughs> saying earlier to Vicks, so I had letters this morning from my insurance telling me all my forms of insurance are going up. I've just sat and you know what? Well, can't be bothered. That's,
1: That's it. Bothered I'm sure of Vix. I'm too lazy to sleep around. Tell me why I should. <laughs> Tell me what what's out there for me.
6: Well, you know, you've just got a you, you've just got to use comparison sites. It's like the equivalent of me going to the Super Bowl when I was single and going to the pub, and it was all men. And I would learned five facts about the Super Bowl, and I drink for free all night. So you've just got to go where the where the savings are, and we've done that for you. And I work in price comparison, so I know this to be true. So you just need to visit one website for your things like your energy or your broadband. Okay. It gives you all of the prices. It works for things like your bank accounts as well, which is good. People don't switch bank accounts because they think it's going to be hard. And it's not hard. Well, it has to be easy overdraft. now. They do seven-day switching and they can literally move everything for you. And if they don't, you can kick off. But
1: And there are also initiatives to try and get you to do it. Like, they'll give you £100 mm. for, for nothing.
6: Well, yeah. And that's the thing. There's loads and loads of that back because they want your business. And once you're on their books, they know you're just as likely to be lazy at the end of your contracts as you were in the last one. So even if they've got you with their big fishnet, then they've got you in the system.
2: You are going to have to keep moving, aren't you? There's no guarantee that if you stay, say, for example, you go from British Gas to Robin Hood, you get a really good deal... That deal might end in six months.
6: Yeah. So fixing for stuff like that is good. And you can fix, like with energy, you can fix for a couple of years now. But as soon as that fixes up, they're straight on you. And I think the, the report came out that Citizen Vice were talking about last week, and it's £214 a household, they reckon, per year just on people like whacking up the costs as soon as you get out of like a mobile contract or a broadband contract or sky just eking those prices up and expecting you to so even if you realize you've got to the end unless you put in 30 days notice a month before they're going to get a month out of you of that expensive price anyway so it is all it's queued up to to kind of I always
3: always threaten to leave at the end of a contract, and I always get a m- like much much better deal out of it.
2: I actually allowed myself to be talked out of leaving. I had actually got a better deal yeah. from someone, and I didn't want to be with who uh, was with three because at the time there is a particular blind spot where I live, not literally where I live, but in the city that I live, and it's mm-hmm. a spot I have to spend quite a lot of time in. And I thought oh, I should get, and then they said, "Oh, do you want unlimited Wi-Fi?" And I was like, "Yeah, all right."
6: <laughs> See that's negotiation. That's yeah. nothing, you know. If you can get it's what you want, don't leave for leaving's sake. Sometimes they I will want give you a
2: limited Wi-Fi. To be honest, though, it's, <laughs> it's, that's that's part of the problem. When you go, especially with phones, they're like, "Oh, you get a thousand free text messages." I'm like, I've sent
6: like maybe thirty <laughs> text messages in yeah. my whole life. Yeah, all the free like, minutes. Like, does anyone yeah. even use their phone for calls anymore? Yeah.
2: Like... I suppose you've got to make sure that what they're offering you is something you and actually Yeah,
3: want. rather than just shiny, distracting things. Yeah, and you've got to be prepared to see it through as well like you have to but I've threatened to leave Vodafone a bunch of times and I was prepared to do it because they didn't have the thing that I wanted but they were sort of you know what do you, what do you want and I was like alright well if I can't have that I'd like the moon on a stick please mm. and they were like right here it is there you <laughs> go I got a much better deal and you know it works I stayed. It is brand loyalty and sort of extending it out
2: not just from financial things but just to brands in general is that something that is still happening or are people more sort of casual about it I generally have very little brand loyalty I buy things that are well certain things I always buy the same brand one of which is shampoo but things like washing powder I buy the washing powder that's on special offer and it doesn't matter to me what it what it is am I
6: Unusual or not? No, I think there's two skills of thought. And I think we've got more information than we've ever had before. And we've got more people being dissatisfied and getting their own way than we've ever seen before. We're certainly, Whereas before, we'd have to rely on what we saw on TV and the adverts that we saw on TV. And we didn't really have a way of checking in. Whether, you know, even on substantiation, you see adverts now and it's like, oh, this mascara is going to change your life. 70% of 13 women thought that this mascara Mm -hmm. may change their lives. It's like, (laughs) that didn't exist. It was like the Wild West. So you kind of had to go on the thing that you liked best or maybe the thing that was recommended by your friends. And you did sort of trust that that the adverts were going to tell you the truth. But we all know better now, don't we? With things like TripAdvisor and... If you think you've got a bit of a problem with something, you can Google it. There's a lot more people buying on price. The credit crunch really changed people's habits and I think really shook up people's attitudes to brands in general because you just couldn't afford to be that fussy. So it's, yeah, it's a different world now, but I think people do still feel warm and fuzzy towards some brands, but it can be at their detriment. So like I used to work at the AA and a lot of people who bought through the AA didn't even realise it was a broker. So they were actually insuring through AXA or they are insuring through Saga. Okay. We had a panel of like 40, 50 insurers, some of them you'd never heard of. And we'd just give them the price, like we tell them, but they weren't listening. And then when I worked on claims, they'd ring up and they'd be like, you're the AA, of course you can pick up my car because you're the AA and you do recovery. It's like, yeah, but you're not insured with us actually. You're insured through um, this teeny tiny no man's land insurance company and they're not answering the phone so sorry people still think like british gas for example is nationalized when in fact you know everybody's got the same you know it's the same pipes it's just a different company pressing the button it's yeah i think there's a lot of legacy knocking about so it's good to see people being, being so a bit more yeah you know promiscuous with their choice, you know, <laughs> and how do we
1: get <laughs> The best deals.
6: I guess start with knowing what you want. So, know what you didn't like about whatever the experience is be it financial, be it a product, be it know what you didn't enjoy about it and don't make that mistake again. So, actively look for it. Like, do just do a little tiny bit of research, even if it's just one Google, because somebody is bored enough or loves this stuff enough that they'll have done all of the research and the hard work for you so get into the habit of knowing when your contracts expire so you know broadband choices for example we have a little thing where you can just put your email address in put when your broadband is due to expire put when your mobile contracts due to expire and you'll get an email 30 days before just saying here's some prices it's time to shop around have a look and see if you're happy with what you've got that was a long way wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> that's what uh, she said <laughs> But yeah, don't be don't be excited by shiny trinkets and don't be fooled. So it's like, oh £50 MasterCard voucher. But look of, look at the cost over time. So things like mobile phones as well. Don't automatically go for the free handset. It's not free. <laughs> Basically, the collateral of the phone gets paid off over the course of your contract. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that contract's up, you're paying too much for your contract. So look at maybe whether you can sell or recycle your handset and use that money to pay a chunk of the upfront cost up because it's going to be cheaper over the long run. Or if you're happy with your phone, don't upgrade just because you you can. I think with all the iPhones specifically now, they're all bollocks. They're all the same. And I'm a mug for it and I'm still itchy to get the next one. But I'm also kind of aware that the one I've got is fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't need the next one. And I think just just holds on to things. But don't hold on to things paying the same price. I know, I know you're all lazy. I'm lazy. And there is, there's a Venn diagram or a graph, I'm sure, where there's the exact amount of money you're willing to put a bill working for. Like, and there's a cross section. It's the same for probably quite a few people. So if it's a couple of quid, I'm like, oh, bollocks to it. But... (laughs) be real but when it's things like that could be hundreds of pounds like make the effort it's whatever you can be asked to do really it's but with the big things with the big purchases like things like your mortgage like you know that is going to be an ask to change every six months for the sake of a couple of hundred quid if you've got the time and the will to do it good luck to you but where it's just a matter of visiting a website checking what the best price is and then sort of clicking through and letting them do the rest that is there is no excuse (laughs) for not doing that and it could be saving you a couple of hundred quid
4: you play ball like a girl
3: go on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we pick up a broom and head onto the ice before asking ourselves what the fuck is going on both here and indeed in women's sport generally speaking well listeners you may rejoice for the winter olympics are upon us Oh yeah, oh yeah, does dance, does dance. I love an Olympics. Cold, hot, I don't give a shit. I'm down for whatever in that particular respect. So, the thing you've got to really dig about the Olympics is not just what a stupendously good platform it is for women's sport. Equal prizes, equal billing, on the actual telly and in the actual news, etc. But how random the sports are. Like curling, for the example. What the what?! And the biathlon. They ski really fast for a bit, they shoot some stuff, they ski again. It feels a bit like you're watching a Bond film from the 70s or the Docklands Light Railway. I imagine once upon a time it looked like the future, but, like, you know, it, it doesn't anymore. Anyway, as always, I digress. So, Team GB are not going to do tremendously well in the inclement weather sports compared to the non weather specific sports. Story of our fucking lives, right? Network Rail, right? But what is excellent is that it's the women who are running ting in winter sports for Team GB. So you've got Elise Christie, who might actually already have a gold medal by the time this podcast is out, having set a new Olympic record, it was immediately beaten, to be fair, in her 500 metre short track heat on Saturday. She took pretty much every accolade going last year after becoming a world champion across three different distances in her sport and is predicted to take home two medals from Pyeongchang. Eve Muirhead took a bronze medal home for the curling at the Sochi Games and has a decent shot at another attempt this year, plus the very excellent Lizzie Yarnold will be looking to retain her Olympic championship in the skeleton. Gutted, of course, for Katie Ormrod, who's out of the slopestyle contest having broken her wrist and her heel, but her teammate Izzy Atkin will represent and we wish her all the best. If you want a more detailed analysis of how this has come to be, I caught up with all of the above-named athletes, bar Ormrod, and wrote some words about it for Eurosport, which you can find at eurosport.co.uk, plus we'll tweet the link as well. But for now... Here's some words from Eve freaking Muirhead about what she's most looking forward to at the Games. I'm here with Eve Muirhead from the GB Curling team. Eve is getting ready to go to the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics in February. And we are in a slightly noisy cafe above the ice skating rink at the Natural History Museum. And it's rammed because it's like two Saturdays before Christmas and everyone's gone festive Mental Eve, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. What are you most excited about for the Pyeongchang Olympics?
0: There's lots of things to get excited about going into winter games, um, and I guess for myself having experienced two before, you kind of know what you're going in for. And the exciting part for me is I always remember back to when I won that medal in 2014, and what kind of goes through your head and what what emotions are shown when you do play that final shot and um, you know you have won that medal and for me those are the exciting exciting parts that I look forward to um, hopefully again and even just to get the chance to have great Britain on your back is something pretty special. You know do you feel an immense feeling of pride wearing the GB kit? Yeah of course there's always a big element of the pride there and living in scotland and and most of the time competing for scotland it makes it very different having great britain on your back so it probably makes it a little bit extra special as well
3: for people who don't know much about curling obviously it's probably it's probably a lot more physical than people would imagine what kind of preparation and training do you do
0: yeah curling's a lot more physical than a lot of people think and if you can imagine um, being on the ice for up to three hours, maybe two or three times a day, that's probably a max of like six hours on the ice competing. And for the sweepers out there, that's a, that's a lot of hard, hard work. And we do a lot of kind of high-intensity interval training for that. We also do a lot of strength and conditioning as well. So that, I guess, gives us a lot of core stability, single leg drive, explosive power. And I also believe the more kind of physically fit you are, the more mentally fit you are as well. It's, it's a sport that takes a lot of thinking um, it takes a lot of emotional energy and especially for myself being the skip, like if I make one wrong decision, that could cost us the game
3: And do you feel a lot of pressure in that in that situation?
0: I do, I think there's always pressure but I think it's, it's good that you do feel the pressure and a couple of weeks ago we came away with the, the European title and for me, yeah it's going to add pressure going into the Olympics but I think it's good for us as players knowing that we can cope under that pressure and we can perform under that pressure and really that to know that we're capable of winning at this late stage as close to Olympics is, is really going to help us.
3: Why do you think women are dominating GB's interests in the winter sports?
0: It's exciting for, for women in sport that, that there is all these medals getting produced by ladies and I'm always one to try and get as many people involved in sport as I can, whether they're male, whether they're female. But I know the kind of population of sport, there is a lack in of female athletes and I would love to try and get um, more females involved in sport. And when I was younger, like I, I remember myself like lying that I forgot my PE kit, like it wasn't a cool thing to do. Oh yeah, like it wasn't cool to do. I'd go and hide in the library with my friends and you'd sit on your phones and that was that was cooler than, than doing PE. <laughs> so I just look back now and I just, and I think sport is one of the most important aspects of growing up, like being physically fit being mentally fit and just feeling feeling good for yourself so just to hear that medals are predicted from women is great like it's fantastic and I think for winter sports especially where maybe we don't get as much coverage it's a really good chance to showcase that women are capable of performing at the highest of levels
3: ordinarily get the airtime or the coverage that men's sports get do you have any thoughts about coverage of women's sport in the UK
0: well, I think a lot of coverage of sport in general in the UK is like you switch on the TV and it's rugby or football. Really, majority being football. I'm not going to lie; there, there's not a lot of women in sport on TV, and I would love there, I'd love there to be more. And I think it's great that in the winters, winter sports, especially that women are dominating that. And um, I'd love to see more coverage, not just once every four years. But I guess as athletes, all I can really do to help that is keep playing well and keep producing medals and then hopefully that gets the sport out there so i think it is getting there slowly um, i know like the women's world cup and, and different things like that have been have been shown on tv but if we can get get even more it would be really good
3: finally how do you fancy your chances
0: I'm I'm really looking forward to Olympics, it's been four years of very hard work and since ever having thrown that last stone in Sochi and got that bronze medal, it wasn't long after I was thinking about the next Olympics and, and what I had to do better to get to the top of the podium, because obviously bronze is good but it's not at the top is it, so I'm looking forward to it, I think having the European title behind us this year and knowing that we can... Beat these teams and and be the best in the best in the world when it when it counts is, is definitely in the spotlight. So I think the foundations are all there. We've got another couple of weeks of hard training and I'm looking forward to it.
3: Lovely stuff. Of course, we wish Eve and all of Team GB the very best for the Pyeongchang Games.
0: Before we rack off for the
3: week, a quick tip of the hat to join Neville, the former Irish rugby international turned referee who broke history last week by becoming the first woman to take charge of a men's top-level rugby union match in the UK. Neville told the BBC her ultimate ambition is to officiate at a Six Nations match and we very much hope that she gets to do that. So, dudes, if you're listening... That is all from me this week. I'll be back next week with more from the world of women's sports. In the meantime, if you want to shout at me on Twitter in a nice way, not a nasty way, please, then please do. I'm on at Inspire Gen, and you can actually follow me live blogging some of the Winter Olympics, including the women's curling for Eurosport this week. I'll be up from 11 to 1:15 on Thursday and Sunday, and 10 to 1:30 on Saturday. Until next time.
2: Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I watched 1985's The Black Cauldron, which you might remember we were talking about a few weeks ago. It was the first Disney animated film to receive a PG rating. It was the first Disney animated film to ever use CGI imagery. And at the time it was made, the most expensive animated film ever made.
1: It was like $44 million or something.
2: It completely bombed at the box office and put Walt Disney feature animation close to bankruptcy. It's probably the least Disney Disney film ever made. It's loosely based on the first two books of the Chronicles of Prydain by Lloyd Alexander, no. which themselves are based on
1: Welsh mythology. I've read the Black Cauldron before; I'd seen it.
2: Okay, we're doing better than me. I had heard of this film before we started doing DDD, but I had never seen it. Did you guys manage to watch it?
3: I no, no, obviously I didn't. <laughs> but uh, but I've never, apart from when you sort of mentioned it. The other week, I've never even heard of it. Well, there is a reason for that, which we will. The House of Mouse is mortified that it ever made it.
1: I did watch it, and then, as often happens with Disney films, realised that I had seen it before, like probably a few times. And spoke to my sister about it, who remembers it quite fondly, actually. Clearly implying she'd not seen it recently.
3: Okay. Uh, So yeah,
1: I rewatched it, but I did have a little sleep in the middle. So did you like it, Hannah?
2: Okay, so I made the bold statement that this is the least Disney Disney film ever. So just to clarify for those who might think, but she says something like that every week. Here's the first two sentences from the plot summary on Wikipedia. In the land of Prydain, Taran is an assistant pig keeper on a small <laughs> farm, home of Dorbin the Enchanter. Dorbin learns that the Horned King is searching for a mystical relic known as the Black Cauldron, which is capable of creating an invincible army of undead warriors. The cauldron born. So, yeah, that's what I mean by not very Disney. That sounds quite scary. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but they actually cut a lot of the scary bit out. Um, but I love that he's an assistant pig keeper,
2: but, but there's there only the main, one yeah, There's there only one the pig. pig. But just, there's also not a main pig keeper.
1: I thought Dolben was the main pig keeper. Oh,
2: well, maybe. I thought he just sort of ran the farm. Yeah, but well, they that's... keep a pig okay. like open, I think it? it's kind of embarrassing to be the assistant to someone who doesn't exist but <laughs> they have it anyway Ta- Taran discovers that the pig he spends his life looking after is basically an oracle and he is sent <laughs> on a mission to hide her from the horned king who could make use of a pig that can locate lost things I mean shit who couldn't I'm oh, seriously so Taran gets it's sent off St Jude so Sauron gets sent off to live in a cottage with just a rubbish packed lunch of a slice of bread and an apple it to see through. Is <laughs> Isn't he supposed to share that with Henwen as well? I think he is. And, That's so, the and so starts the poor man's Lord of the Rings, where the young innocent has to leave the shire-like place he lives to go on the journey. He's actually trying to save the pig rather than throw it in the fire, although, and far be it from me, if they'd actually done that in the first place, they could have just had a nice bacon sandwich and I could have done something else in an hour and 20 <laughs> minutes of my life. I think that would have made it a very sinister Disney movie, though. The, pig, a bambi. the pig, by the way, as Mick just mentioned, is called Henwen, which is close enough to Henningwing <laughs> to make me think that if they ever do remake this, I'd like to see the pig making jokes about the German sense of humour. <laughs>
1: I think that would make it eminently more watchable. It would.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Although it's it's a woman pig.
2: Is she a woman pig? He he could still do it. All right. Hey, hey, Germany won the the popes. So it might sound like I'm being a bit negative, but in all honesty, I was secretly really hoping. No, I was really hoping I was going (laughs) to find an overlooked gem. You know, so many Disney films have aged so badly. I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was one that turned out to be way ahead of its time? But, dear God, if The Black Cauldron is due a reassessment, I don't know what time that would be. You know, maybe that kid in the road might stumble across a battery-operated TV with a DVD player in an abandoned cottage and when compared to the horrors of seeing Michael Kenneth Williams begging not to be left naked at the side of the road, The Black Cauldron (laughs) might look like a good film. But everybody else is just going to be disappointed, I'm afraid. I could probably make you aware of what's very wrong with this film by continuing the plot description. Yes, please. Because it's pretty obvious right from the start what's really wrong with this film. Taron and Henning Wang leave the Shire and almost <laughs> immediately come across problems. Because Taron is a twat. Oh, he's a prick. Right Now, 25-odd Disney films into this series, I know the lead character being a total dick is nothing new. Peter Pan, knobhead. Simba, prick. You leave him alone. Yeah, But Taron is somehow worse than both. Probably because of the fact that it's almost certainly the worst voice performance I've ever heard in a Disney film. It is so dreadful. It's laughable. I was like, are they
1: doing this on purpose? Is it comp-? like the timing's all off? It's just. Awful.
2: It, it's played by a guy called Grant Bardsley and he doesn't have his own Wikipedia page is all I'm saying.
3: <laughs> or any acting jobs I no. would imagine.
2: <laughs> it, it's basically what adults think children sound like and it's just it's just awful.
3: What do adults think children sound like? I want to go and play with my Ford in the forest.
2: <laughs> yeah, and they're all incredibly posh. Um, oh, dear little piggy, I better not lose you. But if you can believe this, Taron is actually less irritating than what's about to arrive on the screen. Oh, my God. Because he might have lost the pig in the opening seconds, but he meets something else. <laughs> the real charge Jar Binks of the operation. Aye. like Gurgy. a nonsense-talking, baby-talking creature that can only be the result of a 70s american tv star fucking an old english sheepdog (laughs) and then let donald duck teach the resulting creature to speak there is not a single moment that he is on screen that i wasn't wishing for his death he's i mean he's just terrible the pig if you're interested has been taken by the horned king who is played by john hurt i mean jesus what a waste (sighs) of talent and he's like Skeletor, except his body is bones rather than purple and ridiculously buff.
1: <laughs> it's all about He-Man for Hannah, always.
2: <laughs> Actually, I was never really into He-Man. <laughs> She-Ra? No. Oh,
3: okay. Princess no. of power. Lover. No.
2: I'm a bit, I'm a bit, I sort of fall in the wrong gap. My brother likes He-Man, but if I had to watch stuff with him on the telly, I'd much rather gone for Thundercats. I was going to say, but oh, the cats, Thundercats. And yeah. the
1: cats are indeed go. Carry on. Yeah. I can confirm that Gurgi, Gurgly, Gurgi, Gurgi, Gurgi is possibly the most irritating creation that the House of Mouse have put on film.
3: Yeah. I'm still thinking about (laughs) Thundercats.
1: You do that. He's probably best.
2: Anyway, basically, the the rest of the film is. Oh, he's like, he's like Snarf.
3: Snarf is a twat though, isn't he? Snarf is like a proper twat.
2: so many other just, I I hate
1: him. I hate him. I hate him.
2: Anyway, basically, the next hour is Taron's trying to get the pig back and fails, and then meets some people, and then goes to Mordor basically, and then meets <laughs> some fairies, um, which are really Disneyfied and kind of incongruous, and then he meets some witches, and then he defeats the bad guys, sexy witches, and then he beats, defeats the bad guys, and then Gurgi dies, hooray! Yeah. But then he comes back to life. Uh. Oh. Everyone goes back to the farm. The end. So, should we talk about the female characters? The right. pig. Well, there's the pig, but, you know, she doesn't speak. The first up is Princess Alonwe, who is the Disney princess left outside in the rain, staring through the window when all the other Disney princesses are being fated inside. Yeah, she's Cinderella's Cinderella. Yeah, quite. Despite being an actual princess by birth, Alonwe is shunned. By virtue of the fact that her film was shit and nearly bankrupt <laughs> the company. And she
1: dresses mainly as a scullery maid, which yeah. I don't think sells as many costumes.
2: Cinderella isn't even a real princess. She's like Kate Middleton. A statement which I realise now is both unfair to Kate Middleton and to Cinderella. <laughs> but at least Cinderella's on the merchandise. The Elanri costume has not been out of the cupboard at Disneyland since 1985. That's an actual fact. Oh, oh. So, you know, she's, she's a neglected underdog of sorts and as such I wanted to like her despite her obvious privilege, you know, like Tiffany Trump. Um, but Taron first encounters her when she is organising a jailbreak, you know, she's smart, she's brave, she's a lot of other things that, that Disney women need to be. But on the other hand, she finds Gergie endearing, which makes me doubt her entire worth as a human being. Absolutely. She's got a magical bauble as well. Oh, poor Judger. Yeah, which kind of just drifts out of the plot. Yeah, it just floats off at one like point. it would have been quite helpful at points. Yeah. There's also three witches, one of whom has some proper jiggling tits. <laughs> In fact, it goes full on Benny Hill for a while because <laughs> a character who's played by Nigel Hawthorne, another waste, is turned into a frog. And then bounces around on her tits for a bit. Sharp! And then and then gets stuck right in her cleavage and has to like fight his way out. And I reckon that it's actually probably this and not the army of the undead that got it a the, PG certificate.
1: Uhhuh. It's not the cauldron born, it's Trampo Tits.
2: I don't know what else to say other than it was a crushing disappointment. I mean, okay, I created most of the anticipation myself, thinking I was unearthing a lost Disney classic. But nonetheless, this oh, about... is excremental.
1: Okay. And also there's the young man's obsession with his magic sword.
2: Yeah, which he then just gives away. Just gives
1: it away. Just gives it away. Squandered. Squandered. He gives sword. away a
2: magic sword in order to bring that fucking piece of fluff <laughs> shit back to life.
1: Imagine if a dust bunny could talk nonsense. That's what Gergi's like.
2: That thing that Peggy carries around my house, yeah. right? That she goes makes her go. Right. Yeah. That is more entertaining than Gergi. Um, what score are we giving it please I'm going to give it one one what one Tiffany Trump
1: award for ignored creations out of five okay um, so hopefully you're all going to rush off and watch that immediately <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I, I wouldn't bother yeah, yeah I'm not it's no, okay you did I. miss out
3: That's all from us this week. Thanks very much for joining us, as ever. Next week, we've got an absolute cracker for you. Maddy Hickish is chatting to Ruby Tando about eating. Eve Simmons from Not Plant Based will be joining us to chat about eating disorders. And comic Desiree Birch, who is like an absolute legend, will be talking to us about her show Unfuckable. I need to tell you about our live shows. Next up, we have got an absolute cracker for you, I promise you. We've got Sally Wainwright, Ruth Jones, Fern Britton and Wunmi Masako. It's pretty big, pretty big. So you can get tickets for that and info on all of our other shows over at www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. And we are about to announce some more shows and some very exciting guests for them. We may already have announced them by the time you listen to this, but if you haven't seen it already, then do do go and have a look. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Standard Issue UK. You can follow me. I'm at Inspira Jen. You can follow Mickey at Mixed and Noonan. And indeed, you can follow Hannah at That Dunleavy. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Also, listen out for Sunday Chops this week. We will have the long version of the interview with Anne Miller about books that you should be getting in your eyes as opposed to podcasts, which you should be getting in your ears. And also, to coincide with Yosra uh, Osman's lovely Oscars chat, we've done you a little playlist of Oscar-winning songs, and it's controversial, mostly thanks to me. Please do have a little look for us on Spotify, and and you'll be able to find it, and also we'll be tweeting the link out this week. So that's all for me. All that remains for me to say to you is stay frosty, champs.